Welcome to the Q. Conversations in digital media. This podcast is brought to you by Q1 Media. Digital campaign execution and optimization since 2004. Our next episode is queued up and ready to roll. Thank you for listening. You're in the queue. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the queue, Conversations in Digital Media. I hope you're doing well. Uh, this, of course, is brought to you by Q1 Media, and uh, very interesting enough, we're getting a lot of OTT CTV requests with all the people and partners we work with. Um, I know you guys have probably been getting into the space, wondering how much true scale is out there, and uh, we can definitely uh, help you with that. So definitely reach out to Q1 Media if you have any questions regarding OTT and the CTV space, because um, then that's the, that's where the markets and the industry is going. Um, today's guest was a very interesting one. Um, it's uh, James Short. He's uh, out of Inwood Road Films, actually an independent movie producer, but got his start back in the digital space, uh, working with websites back in the late 90s, uh, then going into uh, the digital marketing space and then rebuilding websites uh, back in the like mid to late 2000s. Uh, so I kind of there's a really good aligning theme within the digital media space and then moving into film with uh, working with startups on the digital media side and then also working with uh, investing and financing into independent films. Uh, he's got a few films that are coming out, uh, Plus One with uh, Maya Erskine and Jack Quaid. That's coming out this Friday, it premiered at Tribeca and won the Audience Award. And then Confessional, uh, which is another film that uh, came out at Method Fest in L.A. And also has another documentary about, uh, it's called Brick House, a pro-women's uh track football or basically a football team tackle football team back in the 70s and it's a really cool documentary he's he's very excited about that project um hope you guys enjoy the listen this is james short thanks james for joining us here in the queue i appreciate you joining us uh so you were in town this weekend got yes. a little taste of the austin vibe and how that's changed yeah <laughs> Went to rainy street did a few things <laughs> how was the how, what's different about austin from the last time you came oh man well you'll see there's the last time I came, and then there's, you know, since I've been coming to Austin, right, <laughs> which is uh, the mid-90s. Um, every time I come to Austin, it's like every, you know, four or five months or so, it's, you can still sense, like, more people, more happening, more growth, right? Um, and probably to the chagrin of a lot of people in mm-hmm. Austin, at least certain parts, but um, if you own property here, it's great, right? Yeah, <laughs> just keep going, keep yeah, going up. Exactly, so. Um, so you, you live know, out of LA right now, correct? Yeah, I live in Venice yeah. Beach, mm-hmm. and um, if anyone hasn't been to Venice Beach, but they have been to Austin, you can probably imagine Venice is like South Congress, but next to the beach. Yeah. It's probably the closest or best way to describe it. Um, Still good tacos though, right? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The food and would you? What would you say? Food. L.A. tacos or are you an Austin taco person? What's actually probably probably Austin tacos um, for sure. Just you know, we don't have a Torchies out there, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. But we do have some great. Um, yeah. We've got a place next to me called Clutch that has some fantastic uh, tacos. And the fish, so. the fish tacos are you can't really can't beat that in L.A. or Venice because it's so fresh and they're just, they throw them together so easily in the tortillas. But yeah. Austin, yeah, Torchies is is, is uh, kind of starting to take over the world, which is kind of funny. They're moving, there'll probably be one in L.A. eventually. The, yeah, there probably will be. Yeah. Enough Californians who do that <laughs> and make the Austin trip, and people are mad about that too, but the, uh, the Austin people coming in. Right. Uh, so yeah, tell us a little about yourself, like where you're from and, and kind of how you, kind of where you came from and maybe how you started getting interested in, uh, in the business side. Sure, yeah, so I was born and raised in Fort Worth. Um, I came to Austin in 94, um, and University of Texas was the only school I applied to for some reason, probably wasn't the smartest thing, but uh, thankfully I got in. And um, uh, I started just taking classes that I liked. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my career, but I loved reading, I loved English, I loved uh, writing, and so I took, I became an English major, and um, I love stories, you know, mm-hmm. love telling stories. Um, I love using that kind of to connect with people, you know? Um, and 
but as I you know got closer to graduation um, and trying to figure out okay like what I wanted to do with all these English classes um, for a while there I thought it was I was going to go into editing or publishing but I started working for this company called CollegeStudent.com uh, that of course Matt Bentley and Bill Weeman worked mm -hmm. at as well here and um, I <clears throat> that was my first sales experience. What 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 made you want to work for kind of a digital startup or what was that? Like? Uh, two things. One, I needed a job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, two, this was, you know, this is 1998. Mm -hmm. So the internet was just blowing up, right? Netscape I probably went public that year. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, my, my friend, Aaron Hinsman, her boyfriend uh, helped start this company, collegestudent.com, and they're looking for somebody to do local sales, uh, advertising sales, to local businesses in the Austin market. And you had um, no experience at that point? Zero, <laughs> zero. I was terrified. The first sales encounter I had was walking into Supercuts completely cold with a binder of sales materials and trying to see if they're interested in paying a few hundred dollars a month to be listed on collegestudent.com website. Did you so, get it? Yeah. Uh, no, I didn't get that one, <laughs> but I got a lot more after that. And mm -hmm. I really like sales. Um, a lot, just one, just because of the, the whole relationship uh, piece of it, you know? And I really enjoyed uh, the consultative part of it, I guess. So coming to a company, to a business, finding out what their challenges are, and hopefully your product or service can kind of help solve those. but. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of a puzzle in a way. A lot of the same reasons I liked reading literature, you know. Um, there are all these different facets to, uh, you know, a book or a story or a character, and you're kind of trying to piece it all together and trying to piece together, you know, um, a plan for a company or a sales plan um, was kind of similar to that. And so, yeah, so I, uh, I gravitated to it and, I started, you know, worked for collegestudent.com full time, and that was the beginning of my digital media career. Well, that's you're right, though. I think people get this idea of like sales is so hard, but at the end of the day, you're just learning about people, you're learning about businesses, yeah. and you're just kind of genuinely going in with, hey, I think you know we can help you or whatever it is, and get more people in the door. And they got they're sure. meeting with you for a reason, so yeah, exactly. they yeah, know you interest, can help, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think the the switch flipped for me from, oh, people don't like salespeople, they're salesy, you know, yeah. and they're high pressure and they're gonna lie to you just so they can make a sale, right? Um, as soon as I, you know, early on I recognized like, actually no, as, soon as, you, as long as you have a product you believe in, service you believe in, the company, that, the people that you work with, everybody's working towards the same goal, um, it was actually became a lot more fun because at that point, that's, that's when I actually started going for the no. Right, I was you. You really the more time you spend qualifying um, your potential customer and recognizing sooner rather than later, no, you are not. This is not a good fit, but still preserving that relationship because now they trust you. Right, maybe you can work with them down the road, but the product or service you have now isn't a good fit. Like that, that changed the game for me and took all the pressure off. Yeah. You know, yeah, you've got pressure to you know you want to hit your sales goals and you got your own standards for yourself, right? But it really uh, mitigated any of the you know feelings of rejection that you might get from that people do get from doing sales. So at that point, yeah, my goal was just to find uh, you know people I loved working with, product I believed in, and as long as I had that, then I knew I could I could sell and help help people. Yeah, and you don't become a seller in their mind. They're like you're like their consultative arm. <laughs> They're like exactly. actually you're just you're the person I just want to talk to about X Y Z. It could even be something that you're working on. But like, hey, I got this other buy. Totally. Can you take a look at this? Because I, I don't know if I trust this guy or I don't know. It's so then you become that person. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you look looking at it all looking at it from a long term perspective. I mean, again, it goes all the way back to to relationships, and it's the same in the the film industry that I'm now involved mm -hmm. in. It's been the same throughout my career, and I'm sure everybody would would confirm that. So that's what it's about for me. So you moved on, obviously, from the. I mean, you were in the web space for quite some time, digital space. Um, yeah. Went on to uh, work, you know, on the East Coast, I believe. Or was it? And yeah. You moved over. So you've traveled kind of bit, lived on the East Coast, West Coast, and yes. Central, all time zones. Yeah, yeah, I have. I moved to uh, the Washington D.C. area in uh, 2000. 
and um, still in the you know working in digital media. Um, I worked for this company called eStudent Loan. They're kind of like the lending tree for student loans back then, like an online student loan marketplace. Mm -hmm. And that team was based in Bethesda, Maryland, to be exact, and uh, worked with a great group of guys there. Um, Brian Kraft, in particular, um, oh. founded that company and was, uh, was a real mentor for me when it came to sales. What was the, the student loan site about? Was it... Trying to get people to refinance or help. No, them? no, actually, it was um, it was really just about comparing rates for private and government funded loans. So uh, you're a student or you're a parent, and you're trying to figure out like, okay, how much how much is this loan gonna cost me? What's the interest rate rate gonna be? Yeah, it wasn't a lot of difference between the government side because that was, that's just an issued rate. But yeah. they had a few things they could do to kind of change. Uh, offer incentives and things like that. Still helping consumers try to pick their right their lender. But the but the, but the private loans were offered mm -hmm. lots of different options. Yeah. So I um, so yeah so we, you know we built that company up and um, and we sold it to uh, actually we sold it a couple times. Um, <laughs> a company called Student Advantage at one point, um, and then they sold it along with our team to another company called Alloy. Um, they had their own kind of private. Uh, university students and universities uh, division of their company so um, I yes lived in uh, Washington DC slash Bethesda area for uh, for a few years and then I came back to Austin to see what it was see what it'd be like in the fortune 50 world yeah. I've always been startup world right yeah and uh, Matt Bentley uh, he kind of got my resume to the top at Dell. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed there and I was like, you know what, I'll give, um, I'll give the big corporate company a ch chance, see what it's like. And I love the people at Dell, they were great. But within a few months, I realized that I'm a startup guy through and through. And yeah. I left six months later. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> turned well, around back to DC. Uh, to start another company with Brian Kraft, who I worked with at East Student Loan. Oh, okay. And then I was there. I was in uh, uh, D.C. for eight years uh, building that company. Wow. And um, that, was a that was a company called Market Hardware. Mm -hmm. And we built websites, web marketing services, kind of a full-service boutique solution for, for local small businesses, um, but on a national scale. Um, with a big focus on home improvement contractors, residential service contractors. We had some other industries as well, but a very verticalized approach. And, and people like contractors use this across the country and or consumers or just uh, mostly like No, B2B? Ba basically marketing sites for, uh, for local businesses. For local businesses. Yeah, okay, exactly. Cool. So we were helping with their, it was a B2B product helping out B2C companies. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. Um, and I had, I, I led all sales and business development. For that so that entailed um, training up all the salespeople heavily involved with all the products that we, we created for our customers um, it also entailed establishing relationships with all the relevant trade associations and all the verticals that we were mm -hmm. relevant in so the air conditioning contractors of America the National Modeling Association and all these different trade groups that represented all the professionals in these uh, various industry categories. I mean, service industry probably isn't, I mean, they, they are, we're into the space pretty early on. They're savvy enough. They got, because they needed to be where the people were searching, but how was it working in the digital space with maybe some people who weren't really knowing what the heck you were doing? Yeah, no, that's a great question because we saw early on that people were going to stop using the yellow pages and start using Yahoo. And, and what Google, year was this right? about? This, is, this is 2004. Four, okay. Yeah. Google was just starting to take over. Exactly the world. right. Yeah. Yahoo was um, probably still had more market share at the time, but Google was uh, short would, would be shortly overtaking them if they hadn't already around that time. But anyway, yes. Yeah, so you know, home improvement, residential service contractors, guys that fix your air conditioner or remodel your kitchen or fix your plumbing, guys, businesses that that um, do exceptionally well, make a ton of money, right? Um, really smart guys, but didn't grow up on the internet. They knew that they had to be on there, and they knew they needed to look professional, but they didn't know how to do it. And more importantly, they didn't know who, didn't know who to trust. In fact, a lot of the, our first customers were, 
were guys that had maybe their nephew build their site in their basement, and then he went to college and they lost control of their website, or some guy ripped them off, or they did some do-it-yourself, build-my-own-website solution. It, these guys aren't website designers. They, you know, fix faucets. Yeah, a lot build. of them got burned. Yeah, I mean, they got they, burned. Yeah. Right? So, frankly, that pain that they went through was our gain, right? So, when they went through that, <laughs> that experience and they heard from Market Hardware, that was approved, if not full out endorsed by their trade association that they know and love and they know all those people, like that that took care of the the trust question. Like, can I trust these guys, right? So you got in with the right people first that all these other companies are like, oh, well, they make sense. That it, makes sense. They're working with these these guys. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. At the very least, like, I'm going to answer their call. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to give them a shot, right? Maybe yeah. we're not the best solution for them, but because uh, we were more expensive. We were asking for... Two, three, four, five thousand dollars up front before they even saw a website. Pay with your credit card over the phone. Well, so nowadays they, people go, "Yes, do it." Right, exactly. <laughs> back then, back then that was asking a lot. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So we chose to. We really we, we chose the the quality game over the quantity game in terms of like scaling their business as fast as we possibly could. Like we, we really we we deliberately went after those more established businesses, uh, contractors that had, you know, probably multiple employees, less like the one guy in a cell phone kind of operation, but probably the bigger operations, the ones, the guys that could afford, you know, $4,000 up had front. Had some trucks. Yeah, had exactly. Had a team, and, service and, teams. Yeah, and, and those businesses are more established, which means there's a better chance of them recurring for the recurring revenue, right, which were where we really made our, our money, which was the hosting and customer service uh, afterwards, and then and upselling them into, uh, you know, pay-per-click marketing campaigns, Facebook pages. Um, we didn't make a lot of money on the website. It was yeah. really all um, all the services afterwards. Yeah. So, have you ever gone back and looked at the sites that y'all made and gone, yeah, "Oh absolutely. wow, this is this was good for the time, but now." <laughs> yeah. Like, well, yeah, you have to refresh it, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But um, that's all the yes. So our. Our sites evolved. The quality of our sites got better, like with every site that we launched, which was great. And um, yeah, it was awesome. I mean, by the time 2000, the beginning of 2009 rolled around, we probably had about 30 or 40 uh, employees. We had an over a 90% customer retention rate at that point, which was just like unheard of in the industry. Most was like you know 50% maybe. Um, and so we're very proud of that. And a company called Service Magic, which is now Home Advisor, recently merged with Angie's List. Um, Home Advisor or Service Magic was part of the IAC group of companies, right? So IAC, Barry Diller's company that owns, you know, Match.com, and he started Open Table and Expedia and everything else. Huge, huge in the web space. Absolutely, and um, Service Magic they sold leads to contractors. So you go to ServiceMagic.com. Um, you type in what kind of remodeling project you're looking for or you need your sink fixed or whatever it is, and they connect you with industry pros um, and the same model they have today. The, uh, Service Magic was looking to sell their contractor customers more services, including websites and a lot of the stuff that we were doing. So they acquired us in 2009, which we were super, super proud of because I think the Dow was probably around 6,500 at that oh, point. Oh yeah, that was during nobody was buying anything, and we weren't even profitable yet at the time. And they paid a premium for us because they saw the value that we built, um, the customer retention, our reputation in the industry, and uh, <laughs> frankly, and not nothing to that they did. We we had, we were not as controversial a business as Service Magic was in the trade association chatter and, and space mm -hmm. and because all we did was build you know build nice web, websites for them um, but anyway that was a that was a fantastic win fantastic experience for all our careers and then I we all stayed on to work with service magic uh, and kind of adapt our products and services for their customers needs and so I was going out service magic was based in Golden Colorado so I was flying from uh, the D.C. area to Colorado every other month. Well, that's for not about a bad place to go. Years. No, it's beautiful. It's great. <laughs> yeah. I, love, I love Denver and that whole area. Yeah. Um, but after three years of doing that, um, it was definitely a grind. I was pretty burnt out. Um, at that point, become 
vice president of web solutions for Service Magic, which was great. And you know, I was responsible for coaching and training 800 uh, sales and customer service people on uh, on the web services part of the business, basically, which was awesome. It's a, they were a fantastic group of people, and I love working with them. But um, but yeah, but it was, but it you know after a while. Um, I'd been doing with the company for eight years, and I was looking for something different. So I, I, I phased myself out and uh, took some time off after that. That's good. Yeah. Where'd you go? Where was the first place? Man, first place I went was Peru. Oh, nice. Yeah. Machu Picchu? Yeah, I went to oh. Machu Picchu. I went to, uh, yeah, so spent some time in the Sacred Valley. I went down to Lake Titicaca. some llamas? I didn't do that to get that adventurous. But I... Uh, yeah, I, I, I went around Peru for a few weeks, mm-hmm. and then I went to Colombia um, and went in the mountains in there and did a bunch of, like, you know, whitewater rafting and yeah. uh, paragliding and um, scuba diving off the coast, and it was awesome. Is that kind of when you started to think about, okay, I want to tell stories again? Yeah. Like, is that... Great question. Yeah. So, yes, the wheels started turning probably in 2011 or so, right when I was thinking about, okay, it's probably time for me to, to make a move from uh, market hardware and service magic and to move on. And my, my brother had been in Los Angeles for several years at that point, and he was starting to crack into the film business. And uh, I had another very good friend from college that had been out there. So I would go to, out to LA, maybe on average once a year or so, and- Get the handle of the, of the massive yeah, city. Yeah, and you know, I, I I always had a passion for for film, for books, for anything artistic, anything about telling stories, right? Like, from when I was a little kid, um, you know, there were movies like all like, you know, kids my age like loved like entertaining films like mm-hmm. Back to the Future, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Some Robert Top Zemeckis, Gun, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> but I remember being young and you know probably twelve years old and watching adult films and for some reason just getting it like I responded to it films like you know uh, Stand By Me or Dog Day Afternoon or Deliverance or Taxi Driver oh wow 12 years old seeing Deliverance that'll scar any kid (laughs) it definitely left an impression I was like I was I was blown away. I mean, the movies, the movies in the '70s for me. Mm-hmm. All the President's um, Men, Godfather. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Jaws. Um, Star Wars. Those films. <laughs> yeah, those films. Yeah, I just responded to. I think I was looking at them in a different way. Like other than just an entertainment aspect, I was. I wanted to know what was going on behind the scenes. I, w- I wanted to know why, the director made this choice or the actor made that choice. And then when independent films started in the late 80s, like Sex, Lies, and Videotape, like mm-hmm. that film you know, made for probably less than $100,000, Steven Soderbergh, and uh, you know, won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. Like that, um, that film was just made a huge impression on me. I couldn't believe mm-hmm. like, people were making those kinds of films. So I, uh, and then of course, you know, and then you get into the late 90s when uh, the quality of TV really started increasing, right? The Sopranos were kind of like set the course for that and then Six Feet Under and The Wire. And, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so fast forward to uh, you know, 2012 when I leave Service Magic and I'm thinking about what I want to do. I'm like, you know what? I've always I just love film, TV. I want to I wanna be involved in the process of telling those stories. I want to connect with audiences. I want to I need I need to at least explore that and try it out. So, um, around but I, I wasn't sure how to do it. You know, I mean I could go out there and um, go to L.A. and start making connections with people, but I didn't. You know, I knew my brother and one other friend, but I didn't have a network out there. So I was like, you know what? Let me um, maybe I should just go out there anyway. But I was contemplating all of this, and around that time, the summer of 2012. Um, I was talking with Matt Bentley here, of course, one of the partners, and we've been friends since college.com days, friends with Bill still. And at that point, Q1 Media was uh, growing super fast. In fact, I actually was doing a little bit of consulting for them on the side. I was helping them build out one of their owned and operated properties called gotchamovies.com. 
Matt and Bill knew I loved movies. They're like, hey, can you help us build out the site? Well, we need a bunch of content. So I helped them hire, I, I hired probably 15 or 20 interns, college interns across the country to write movie reviews and talk about movies on the site. And we grew that site to like a top, top 10 North American movie property within like 12 months or something like that. And uh, so anyway, so the point of that is like, I still had a great relationship with Matt and Bill, not only personally, but we were started to work together professionally too. And the programmatic advertising part of their business started really taking off. Um, they had kind of started a sister company called Attic Site. And Attic Site was a video network, had some of their own video technology as well. And they're working um, with a guy out in Los Angeles named Phil Banfield, who's also part of the college student or college, kind of part of that early 90s world that we worked in. And uh, Matt and Bill start telling me about the programmatic business. And they've got you know, relationships with hundreds of publishers. And they are putting all their, they're selling their ads in these big ad exchanges. And they're like, this is growing every month. And you know what? We could really use somebody to figure out who these humans are behind the robots buying all of our, all of our publishers' ads. And would you like to be, you know, would you like to head a business development? And, and, and would you like, and if you want to do it in LA, you can. And I was like, you know what? That, that would be a great way for me to go out there, grease the skids, have, have a job when I go out there, yeah. and just establish myself, you know? Um, plus While also it was a, learning the exchange programmatic totally, and learn, right, and learning yeah. a whole, learning, learning a complete. I've always been, you know, really purely on the sales side. I didn't understand a lot of the technology behind the buying and selling of ads, and and, and frankly, a lot of people didn't at that point. Programmatic advertising was still very young. Um, so, I so I agreed. I moved out to LA in the fall of 2012. Started working for Q1 Media. Q1 Media. At the time, they, they officially merged with Attic Site Video, so now everything was under the Q1 Media brand at this point. And I was, yes, I was responsible for establishing and, and maintaining all the big buying relationships that Q1 Media had. Wow. And yeah, it was crazy. I was just kind of thrown into it. I had to learn it as I went. And the funny thing was I, I knew, I, I sensed, early on that it wasn't just me it was like most people we were all kind of learning it at the same time yeah the programmatic space was difficult for a lot of people to understand and yeah. it wasn't it was so new and i mean at that time 2012 it had been around but it was still being worked on and there was still the fraud issues and all that stuff so it's just like it, it went through its growing pains i guess during sure. that time <laughs> it, yeah it did yeah. right so we experience incredible growth. We grew the company 488% uh, in three years. So I think that was between 2012 and 2015. Um, it was insane. It's like just being on this rocket ship, right? We're all just like trying to like barrel the hatches down and <laughs> you know, how are we gonna spend all this money? Good problems to have, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, in, fa in fact, it wasn't egregious like the early dot-com days, but the money coming into the industry and the investments being made, it started reminding me of that. Like uh, the amount of money that companies were spending on out, like outlandish kinds of things, parties and what they started just paying people. And um, it, was, uh, it was a little crazy. And just like in the early dot-com days of the 90s, the, the industry matured and um, it started consolidating, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, which, just kind of a natural evolution of you know lots of industries, right? But it was um, it was a really amazing experience. Um, I loved working with QM Media. I got to travel to back to Austin all the time. Um, got to go to New York all the time. Um, had you know just great relationships with people. Got and got to travel the world. I, I was also head of international, right? So mm -hmm. I was going to conferences in Germany and going to London a lot and. Uh, just really, really exciting, and um, it was really important for for the next stage of my career as well, because it enabled me to establish myself in Los Angeles. And while I was with QM Media, I was able to um, start networking in LA, right? 
And it's a big town. Meet, you need to know people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and meet meet filmmakers and meet people on the financing side of the business. And I just needed to start finding some people that I could trust. You know, um, how long did that take? Takes sometimes. <laughs> it's still happening. Yeah, <laughs> it's still happening. But yeah. I have I have I have gratefully connected with uh, some really fantastic people that are really passionate about making films and that are in it for the long for the long haul you know as I am myself yeah and um, so yeah so being I, I could not have transitioned at least for me maybe some other someone else could but for my story I would not have been able to transition from programmatic advertising space digital media into film producing and investment uh, without being in LA for those, you know, five years or so before I before I made that transition. Yeah, but it also probably helped too that you had such a, a good startup experience, which I guess can be equated to you know the film industry when you're looking at things. Oh to my invest. gosh, absolutely! That's one of the things I love about independent film. You literally start a new LLC for every film. Yeah. Um, you need money. <laughs> you yes, you have to go out and give money. You have your team. Um, you have your, your product, this film, that everybody believes in, and, um, you, and you try to make a profit on that film. What's the uh, process? Like, how long is the process? I think that's where a lot of people don't realize that, that the length of the process of what goes into it. From start to finish on a certain project, sure. how long would you say you are touching it? That's, that's a great question. As a, so I'll answer that as coming, let's say from an executive producer standpoint, which an executive producer... Because it, it means different than like TV versus film when you see that credit. For independent film, an executive producer means that you directly finance, like you put money into that film, or you help raise money for that film. That's typically what that, what that means, right? Um, a producer credit means that you may have helped raise money for that film too, but you are actively, you are actively involved in making business and or creative decisions throughout the entire film's process. So you're putting together... Uh, the cast, you're putting together all the talent around that film, right? Even sometimes um, selecting the director. Correct. Exactly. You're what, what we just call packaging a film, mm -hmm. right? So um, you're you're from the as, as a producer, you're with the film from the beginning to when, let's say, a script or a piece of IP is optioned, um, giving you the right to to make a film about that that script or whatever How that story is. How do you find is. that uh, that script? Is that is that a Difficult process. Um, it's you just not, have to keep reading a lot. Yeah, it's not difficult to find scripts. It's difficult to find good ones, yeah. or the ones you're looking for, right? Um, but, but back to your original question, um, the process can take. It depends on when you can get involved from an executive producer standpoint. Okay, so you can get involved at the very beginning, and it can take from the very beginning. Meaning, let's say a producer comes to you. It's like, hey, I've got this script that I've optioned. And I've got this uh, this fantastic actress attached to it, but we don't have a director yet. We don't have anything else. I don't have any money yet, right? I just know that I've got this lovely actress that wants to play the lead role, and that's it. Can you do? You, would you like to invest in it, or would you like to help me raise money for it? Right? That could take years, right? That could take months. It just depends on, you know, dozens of different variables, right? When you have when you have a piece of talent like a director or actress attached, actor attached to it, then things will happen faster. Mm -hmm. um, we, I have been involved in projects from the very beginning where, um, and I'm still involved with, right? Where from when I first was sent the script to when we actually got the film made, um, and when I say made, like cut, done, ready to show a public audience, that took about 15 months, Wow. right? Um, we, we raised money for a film called Burn um, last year, and we invested in that film. By the time we, we raised money, so I had uh, an investor come in on that film, right? So I got an executive producer credit for that. And I, or we, we, we invested in that film after it was already done shooting. It was going into post-production, right? So there's a big benefit to that. Um, if the movie's already done, that eliminates the risk of the film not being finished for some reason, right? Um, you also have a much shorter runway when it comes between the time you invest in your film and when you might get your money back, right? Mm -hmm. So the earlier you are in on a film, 
uh, kind of like a stock, right? The earlier right. you on any given stock, probably going to be uh, cheaper to buy that stock, right? The earlier you are in on a film, um, oftentimes your, uh, that investment structure may favor you, um, or things can happen that just make that film more valuable over time, right? But it's going to take you a lot longer to get, to get your, to recoup on that project, yeah. And does it matter? I know independent films, they have to get picked up, you know, by something, maybe mm -hmm. like a, whether it's theaters or, um, or even... Now, streaming, TV, streaming te sure. technology. How has that changed the game? Just the streaming and options of where you can disseminate sure, you know, your yeah. product. Um, the streaming services business has completely changed the industry. It's it's not just just that, but yes, the streaming combined with what the studios have been trying to do, it's uh, it's been very disruptive, right? So, um, at the same time, though, I think. I th this is a myth out there. I think a lot of people think that Netflix and Amazon have, have hurt the box office industry, right? Or just, just box office receipts and attendance, but it has not. In fact, box office attendance went up 5% last year. Um, they're projected to go, did, you know, did 11.9 billion last year. It's gonna do over 12 billion this year, right? So, and, and Netflix and is hotter than ever, right? Yeah. So, it, so the, the, the good news is that that hasn't impacted theater attendance at all. Um, there's just more people out there. Um, there are just more ways for them to access content, you know? So one of the biggest changes we've seen with streaming is the types of films that you can, you're going to see in theaters now versus streaming, right? So it used to be a Julia Roberts or a uh, Ryan Gosling or Brad Pitt, a, a big star would be enough to open a film and do hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Um, now, it's really more franchise brand driven from the studio side. Like, so it's gone from this either big star or big original idea to uh, franchise and brand driven films. So the Marvel est established franchise. IP, Marvel fran, right? Yeah. Exactly. So a funny story, I mean, I just read the story about Marvel. Sony back in the 90s, and we all know the, what's happened with Sony, yeah. right? Sony back in the 90s, they wanted to buy Spider-Man rights. They had the home rights, the home video rights, but they wanted the theater rights, right? They went to Marvel. They're like, you know what? We don't want to sell you Spider-Man, but I can tell you what, we'll sell you Captain America, Black Panther, I think Thor, everything else. We'll give it to you for 25 million. And the lawyers went back to Sony. He's like, hey, Marvel's willing to give up all these, these properties for 25 million. And Sony said, nobody wants to watch those films. We want Spider-Man. They passed on it, right? In 2003, 2004, Disney buys Marvel for $4 billion, yeah. right? <laughs> so um, that, that's a great example. Disney capitalizes on everybody's mistakes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And Disney is, um, they are strategically trying to compete with Netflix, right? Mm -hmm. they, they, uh, they're launching their streaming service at the end of this year, Disney+. Plus. Um, but anyway, just kind of finish that conversation. Yeah, so... Uh, now those films maybe that were more um, that you would see in studios being studios producing more star driven or original idea driven films big budget films that is being shifted over to Netflix and Amazon more right more adult driven stuff um, mid budget those films right so um, not just the TV original right, content right, but right, right. big so, studio right. big pain acts. Right, that, that's movie rights. You know, you know, Adam Sandler is doing fifty million, sixty million dollar films for Netflix now. He can't do that. The studios just not doing that. At least not not an original idea. You know, um, Netflix is moving into bigger, like they did. You know, um, what was the Sandra Bullock film? Uh, uh, Bird Box. Bird Box, right? Um, uh, Bright, right? With mm -hmm. Will Smith. Yep. That was like a ninety million dollar film. They so just came out with another rom com. I think it's maybe you're my always mate, always maybe, which yeah. is a big rom com. Always movie. be my maybe. Always yeah. be my maybe. Right. That's good. Yeah, yeah. So Netflix is flush with cash. Plus they've taken on probably as much debt, right? And they're trying to grab market share. So eighty five percent of their content is now Netflix original content. The rest is probably The Office and Seinfeld reruns. Uh, yeah, which but, uh, is, yeah. is, coincidentally enough, syndication has gone up for all of Friends, Office, The Office, Absolutely. and Seinfeld, which they thought would go down once Netflix yep. know, got it all. And they're like, wait, 
actually syndication on other other properties like TBS. Now they want to air Friends because sure. they're realizing that new generations are figuring this out, and not everybody does have Netflix. So right. interesting right. how it has impacted the reverse of what people thought. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's just it's just created more opportunity, mm-hmm. and it's, it's definitely created more opportunity for independent filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean it's that much easier to make a profit on your film necessarily right now. There was this window of time where Netflix was just showing up at film festivals with a blank checkbook and just stroking checks for everything. They're not really doing that anymore. So Netflix is more doubling down on filmmakers that they've had success with in the past and they just want to keep making more films mm-hmm. with them, right? Doing deals like with Ryan Murphy for like $350 million, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Not all of it, but that's what they're, they're doing a lot of. Um, but there are other uh, other streaming services that um, independent that have for independent film, uh, those projects can find a home, you know. Um, and what's I, what I see ha- happening more is independent filmmakers having the opportunity to independently distribute or direct to consumer distribute films. There's these platforms out there now, like Distriber and other ones, where you can get your film onto iTunes and. Uh, other streaming services and do like a revenue share with them Mm -hmm. um, and you launch your own marketing campaign direct to audience marketing campaign if you want Mm -hmm. and in fact we're we're, we may do that with one of our films uh, Confessional a small micro budget film that we did and it's specifically for like like the 17 to 25 year old audience low budget it it's it may not, you know, we screened it in a theater and it did great. It was one of the most fun premieres experiences I've been to, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a, an ex- more experimental film, and it's not necessarily something that a, you know, a theater wants to screen just a because wide audience. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Just because they've got choices of all these other films out there, bigger budget stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Well, and the film industry has the big box office, the wide releases are typically all now these big Marvel, they're big events. Right. And people have to go see, whether it's Jordan Peele's Us, which yeah. comes out at a perfect time when start it, the app right after the Oscars or right before the Oscars, and it's kind of the start of the movie calendar year, but then you go through the box office, and it's hard to compete against all that stuff if you have a wide Absolutely. release, and it's a smaller budget film. It might not, it might get seen if it's on Netflix or right. a smaller yeah, and, yeah. and right, and the, and the theater is still a great. That, mm-hmm. There's probably not a better. There's probably not a better venue to at least start some buzz about your film, right? And Amazon and Netflix, like they recognize that too. Netflix put Roma in theaters for three weeks. You know, not a lot of theater. A lot of theaters rejected it because they usually only agree to ninety day deals where the the movie's got to be seen. But Netflix knows, no, we'll we'll give it to you for three weeks. But that helps them. That also helped them get award recognition, build buzz for the film. Um, a massive director. Exactly. Is yeah. Manchester by the Sea was the same thing with Amazon Studios that went to the theaters for a while, uh, for a little while, but you know got really great reviews. Everybody talked about Casey Affleck's performance, ended up re- winning the Oscar. That gives Amazon more stature. Amazon's a little different. Amazon doesn't care as much uh, about. I think like the the viewership of any given film. They, they want popular films, of course, but Amazon wants prime memberships. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's, that's, uh, that's what they're most interested in. And they're, they're, they're producing great content. In fact, they're, they're doing, I think they're doing more art house stuff, maybe, mm-hmm. than uh, Netflix is. So, well, their growth is in, absolutely yeah, insane. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as so, a company. Yeah, so the, 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 the streaming platforms are, you know, are, are really great for you know, maybe higher concept, dramas, art house films, just more unique, cutting edge type films. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, those are a lot of the films I, you know, those films yeah. I happen to like too. So. Is, is that the space that, I mean, I, you have some projects you're working on right now. Yeah. Um, is that the space you kind of want to keep going into? I mean, what's, I mean, do you want to get to a certain level where you're producing maybe not such indie any projects or do you want to stay in that that realm um no great question i mean i i'm really approaching it more of well if you're, if you're asking like the studio level ones no mm-hmm. not necessarily yeah um i really want i like i like the independent space um because you just have more freedom to you have more freedom to work with who you want to work with right um and and pick the projects that you want right so 
you know, when we're looking for a film, we're, we're looking at all different kinds of criteria. Um, we want, you know, ultimately we want to understand like, who is, what's the audience for this film? And if we can't really answer that, then no matter how much we really love the project, you know, have, being responsible to our investors' money, our own money, like we, we, that's difficult for us to get behind. So just like with a lot of things, you're trying to strike that balance between commerce and art, right? And which can absolutely be done, but you have to, you have to be very careful about, about going to a project. If, if you go into a project and you don't know who the audience is, then that's a problem. Mm -hmm. the, you also want to see alignment between the filmmakers and the financial outcome of the film as well. So the way independent film is structured is, you know, the producers and even sometimes, you know, in the director and even sometimes the cast participate in the back end of the film. They're really not going to make their money in any fees they get up front. The real money they're going to make is that the film is profitable. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of projects that we, we, we want as well, right? That just gives everybody incentive to be with it for the long haul. It really ensures everybody's got the proper, the proper buy-in to that film. Compared to like, okay, here's um, between this, these two producers and this director, they're taking five hundred thousand in fees on a you know one point two million dollar film. Like that just doesn't. They're taking almost half the budget, right? Yeah. That's not something that we want to be a part of. Yeah. So, so you mentioned Confessional coming out. What's what's uh, some new projects you'd like to promote or sure. you have one coming up? Yeah, yeah. I'll talk about a couple. Well, the one that's coming out right now. Um, so, so confessional is not right now. We're working on distribution for that. Um, it's it's um, it was in a little festival called Method Fest um, in L.A. a couple months ago. Um, really proud of it. it. Won the ensemble cast award. Um, it got in a couple of other little film festivals like Chattanooga. Um, so we're working on that that distribution right now. Is that something that you want to develop? You have to kind of submit into music or uh, movie festivals, film festivals, yeah. to kind of get the traction. Yes, yeah, so and the buzz going. Right, exactly. Almost any independent film, part of their strategy to get attention for the film is, is submitting it to festivals. Hope they get it accepted and and uh, and start gathering attention that way. Mm -hmm. um, one of the film, the, the first film that we invested in actually is one called Plus One. Uh, it's this romantic comedy. Um, it's more of a relationship comedy, I would call it, um, and we're incredibly proud of it. Um, Red Hour Films, which has been Stiller's production company, they kind of led production on it. Studio 71 was the lead financier. And it stars Maya Erskine and Jack Quaid. Um, if anyone here listening hasn't seen Pin 15 on Hulu with Maya Erskine, it's hilarious. Um, she's one of the, 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 the stars of that. And um, Jack Quaid is uh, Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid's son. Oh, and wow, I didn't even know that. Yeah. He's yeah. An and how he's, old is he? Yeah, he's great. He's probably in, I'd say close to, right around 30. Oh, okay. yeah, maybe a little, little younger. Mm -hmm. And they are, um, yeah, so we, this, this was filmed in L.A. Um, in the fall of 2017. And we premiered it at Tribeca uh, in April. And it won the Audience Award, Narrative Audience Award, which we're super proud of. Um, and it comes out in... 12, 10 or 12 cities, I think, I think 12 screens across 10 cities uh, this Friday, but it's also being released on iTunes, nice. so everybody can watch it on iTunes on Friday, and uh, yes, it's, it's a really, really funny relationship comedy, just two, two 20-somethings who've been friends for a long time, and they, they're, they're, they're a bit cynical on relationships, they've got it on their own perspective, but they've got a whole... They've got a whole summer of weddings that they have to attend, and they agree to be each other's plus one for the wedding just to kind of, so they don't have to be single uh, all summer long at Yeah, these nobody weddings. wants to yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, predictably, they, you know, they get involved in a relationship, but um, it's a really raunchy, funny, heartwarming way to get to the end of it, and um, that was an absolute joy to make the, the producing team on that. Uh, Ross Putman, Jeremy Reitz in particular, um, Debbie Liebling is involved. She's an industry veteran. Um, they were, they were fantastic. That, that's an example of a script that I read, and I thought, yeah, this is this is cute, you know. But with Maya Erskine, who I'd seen in a uh, show called Casual, 
um, she, she was hilarious in that. And combined with, I knew, I knew some of the producers on it. And I was like, well, look, between Maya Erskine and this producing team, um, I think this is going to be a great film. And so we, we decided to invest in it. And that was a great decision. So yeah, we're no, super it sounds proud great. It yeah. sounds like a, a, a winner. Uh, yeah. I think that's the, that's the funny thing is you kind of, while you, you were talking earlier is about who you, what type of artists are the artistic value, what you want to go with, but then also realize, you know, what's going to sell. I yeah. mean, you've known that from your entire career. What's the product, but then what's the value yeah. to whoever it is that's viewing it? Sure. I, the, uh, yes, but the, the thing I'll say about independent film is just just like any startup company, um, no, no one starts a business aiming to fail, just like nobody signs on. It's incredibly hard work um, to start and, and bring a film to life. Nobody goes into it, of course, when to make a bad film. And sometimes films do not come out the way that you intended. And it just, it just happens, you know, and you, you learn from it and move on. I think from anybody, you know, wanting to invest in an independent film, though, um, approach it just like you would investing in any other, anything, like you would the stock market. You don't want to put all your money in just one stock, right? So we, re we recommend diversify, <laughs> yeah. Find, find different films, right? Because not everyone is going to be you know, a plus one for us. That, that's going to be a very profitable film for everybody involved, right? Um, approach it like that. But uh, it's really cool to see your money work for you compared to seeing your money work for you in a stock market, right? Mm -hmm. So I love the fact that... You're investing in people, you're investing yeah, in... Yeah, exactly. And, you, you know, hey, and if, and if this appeals to you, you, you know, you can go to the premiere and the festival and you can... Especially some of these, the films coming out today addressing like social impact uh, or the changes to in society. Yeah, yeah, topics that, um, that need more attention, right? Whether it's a misrepresented or underrepresented group of people or some social injustice out there. Yeah, have your, have your money work for you that way. Like, those films are really interesting. They're, they're not done for a lot of money and they get a lot of attention from film festivals and those films can make money. So Films have a good impact on society too. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, you've seen the reverse happen. Like you were talking about you know, making films based on that, but sometimes the message hits pretty hard and it changes the way people view things. For sure, for sure. And that's, that's ultimately, you know, that's why I'm in the film business. I want to I connect with people. I love collaborating. And, um, yeah, I could talk about other, other projects <laughs> I'm excited about, but, but yeah, thank yeah, you for yeah. giving me the opportunity to talk about yeah, Plus One. Yeah. Um, we have some other, we have the horror film coming out with Brian, Ber Brian Bertino directed it. Um, that we're super excited about. Not sorry, not coming out yet. We just we're still in the process of post production. But um, bottom line is, we're really excited about where we are in the, the 18 months since we started investing in films. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to uh, to seeing all these projects come to life. That's great. Now we appreciate you joining us here in the queue, and I'm sure a lot of people, you know, with whether they're interested in digital marketing, advertising, or film, those things do align pretty well. So we thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me.